Hello, wonderful people. Welcome to the Birmingham Literature Festival Presents podcast. I am Casey Bailey, former Birmingham Poet Laureate, and I was delighted to be one of the guest curators for the 2022 Birmingham Literature Festival. For the next few weeks, we're going to bring you some highlights from last year's festival for you to enjoy whenever you'd like. You can subscribe to this podcast feed and get the new episodes as soon as they're available. This week's episode is our specially curated Writing from a War Zone event. The Birmingham Literature Festival team brought together novelist Priscilla Morris, whose family fled Sarajevo during the 1992 siege, with poet Pawana Fayaz, who is an Afghan refugee. The event also included an interview with Ukrainian novelist Yubko Deresh, who is still in Ukraine. They were speaking to Dr. Amanda Beatty from the Center of Migration and Forced Displacement at Aston University. Hi, everybody. Good afternoon and welcome. I'm Amanda. I've been given this amazing opportunity to chair the event, and really, if this goes properly, you won't hear me talk much at all. Um, Jonathan, you've given us a very kind introduction and actually stolen some of what I thought I had to say, so I'm going to be very brief. I think what we're going to do, um, we'll do a brief introduction to give some people an idea of where the work has come from. Then we'll go to the video, we'll hear what Yubko had to say, and then we'll come back and we'll have some time for some reading from the works that have been produced. And then we'll have some time for some questions towards the end. So thank you very much for coming. I'm without further ado, I think, First, I'll introduce uh, Pavana. Nice to meet you. Thank you for coming. Now, I did ask you to prepare a little bit of a biography, so I didn't put words in your mouth. But it is my pleasure to introduce you, um, a, a scholar of uh, medieval Persian poetry, also a translator. Now, you were born in Kabul uh, and raised in Pakistan and have a significant number of accolades that precede this particular book that you're going to be talking about today. I was going to say you transferred to Stanford University in 2012, earned a BA in 2015 with a major in comparative literature uh, and a minor in creative writing and an MA in religious studies, only then to go on to Cambridge, pursue a PhD in Persian studies at Trinity College, and you to then become a research fellow uh, at the Carmen Blacker Fellow at Peterhouse Cambridge in 2020. Now, talking today about your debut collection, 40 Names, which was published in 2021, and it was named a New Statesman Book of the Year and a White Review Book of the Year as well, and it has been recently translated into Italian. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Amanda. And then we're moving on to Priscilla. Lovely to meet you and have you here today. Again, the bio and the information that you'd like me to provide. Born of Yugoslav English parentage, uh, born in Cambridge, grew up in London, and spent childhood summers in Yugoslavia, as it was then known. Um, currently dividing time between rural Ireland um, and Catalonia, Spain, working in social anthropology at the University of Cambridge with an MA with distinction and a PhD in creative writing from the University of East Anglia, teaching, uh, actually taught creative writing at the University of East Anglia, Kingston University and City, where you currently teach now at University College Dublin and the Irish Writers' Centre. Talking today about Black Butterflies, uh, which was nominated, uh, sorry, not nominated, was the Indie Fiction Book of the Month in May of 20, 2022. And it was inspired by maternal family history. So very much looking forward to hearing you both talk about these books in a minute or two. Before we get there, though, I would like to introduce uh, a video by the third member of our panel, albeit virtually, Lyubko Deresh, who is a Ukrainian writer, creative writing teacher, and a UNDP Ukraine tolerance envoy. He's written 11 books, and he'll be talking to us today about his most recent book, Where the Wind Blows, published in 2021. And in this book, deals with the tensions between a cancelled artist and the society within pre-COVID war-torn Ukraine. And I think I'll leave it there and we'll turn to the video and then we'll come back um, to have a conversation between all of us. My last book, uh, Where the Wind Blows, is the more or less realistic story about a uh, writer or art artist who uh, becomes cancelled by Ukrainian society or active Ukrainian society due to the polarization in the society that uh, occurred after uh, 2014, after uh, the beginning of uh, war in Donbass. 
And so it was my discussion uh, with the tendencies in Ukrainian society where uh, two positions were possible. Either you are um, very, very patriotic, either you become a betrayer. And I tried to, to show some middle, middle position. And this was also a period of my life when I cooperated with UNDP Ukraine. I became a tolerance envoy. Uh, and in this position, I, I was a member of, uh, of project Respect UA. So, uh, the, the aim of this, of that mission was building a civil dialogue within, uh, di different social groups in Ukraine to, to make Ukrainian society more integral. And with this position, probably, and with this novel, I came to the February 24th of, of this year. So some writers, the ones that were very good in understanding the narratives that are now on the top, the narratives that should come from Ukraine, from Ukrainian side, and that are now coming from the Russian side, fake narratives, some imperialistic narratives that, that Russia uh, was still translating into the world media. Some Ukrainian writers, like top writers, like Oksana Zabushko, Andriy Kurkov, many pan club uh, members of Ukraine, they communicated, they reflected these these narratives and they stopped and prevented, they like deconstructed, deconstructed these narratives and they were very good in, in these discussions. I will not go into details, just uh, explain you one very specific, uh, specific feeling. Afterwards, I wrote an essay uh, where I used the word epiphany. Epiphany, which James Joyce uses this word to explain like the momentary appearance and the momentary experience of of some divinity of of the of the divine and that that was really what i what i felt what i experienced imagine the situation you you have some occupied villages nearby kiev and they are suffering from hunger they need to to have some food and you call the, the government and government says we are doing what, uh, what is in our powers, but we cannot go there. It is, it is very risky. It is very dangerous. So the government cannot go there. We, uh, you call some politician, some politicians, some smaller parties and they say, yes, we help people, but uh, the situation is very hard even for us. We cannot go there. So you find out that the locals, uh, they organize even it is very risky. They organize this rides of cars of their own volunteers on their own risk. They, they go there. They find, they look for the humanitarian aid all over Ukraine and they try to bring this food uh, to, to their people, to people from their village, from their uh, neighborhood villages to, to support people. You don't blame anyone. You just understand that it's on your own responsibility to help. You may say, as as all uh, people say, yes, it's too hard or it's too uh, dangerous or it's impossible. But you may not say this and you may try to do something to, to help these people. And you begin to do really impossible things. And you don't know anyone, but you became, you become friends and you, and you help each other. And this, you feel this like a big organism of, people and this is what i called epiphany because you can you can trust each other only when you when you feel this personality when you feel that you can trust this is like the direct, the direct knowledge of direct feeling of other people's heart and it was a very strong experience for the communities that are here in Birmingham and for our audience um for the panel they're going to take this information and i and if it's it's going to be effective it's affected me listening to your stories um, what do or can people where we are here in the West Midlands in the United Kingdom, what support can we be offering? Um, you, you tell it because the information you've given us today is not what we've heard before. And there seems to be 
if there's any possibilities for support, then I would love to be able to use this opportunity to get that message out there. So maybe you could spend some time talking to us about that. Is that okay? Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. So as I as I understood, as I learned from my experience of being a volunteer, you can be the best in your own place. So uh, you, the kind of your help highly depends on what you can do. If you are, for example, if you are a scholar, you can be very useful in deconstructing Russian narratives and in supporting Ukrainian culture. So I would be very grateful for the scholars of uh, Great Britain to pay attention of uh, this Russian imperialistic narratives that describe Ukrainian culture as a subculture, as a local culture, and try to overcome, try to find these colonialistic intonations in uh, in Slavic studies, in Eastern European studies, and try to discover the real situation. How what is Ukraine in indeed in real? And if you are people who are not connected maybe with university, university surrounding, and you are just meeting, uh, you are you are helping Ukraine or you help Ukrainian refugees that are a lot in in UK, please be kind and generous and uh, forgetful for Ukrainians. We are not perfect and we may do some mistakes and please excuse us our mistakes and we will try to become better. So, yeah, that was recorded about, I guess, about a month ago. Um, and things on the ground have obviously changed since that happened. I think the way maybe to bring it back to here and today and what we want to be talking about is going back to that first idea that uh, Dubko discussed about epiphany. Because it really reminded me of community. Um, and that might be a really interesting way of, of getting into what you both have curated in your own novels and only as a jumping off point um, and taking it where you feel your works need to go as the people who have created and birthed these into existence. So, uh, Parvana, did you want to go first? Yes. Uh, first of all, I'm so happy to be here among you all and talking about this very important topic that we're still struggling to really understand what's happening. History is repeating itself. And as the author beautifully said there is a moment of epiphany and for writers that's a moment of realizing that we can't do anything but to be present and to do a rediscovery within our own self and, and what that means. And it's also telling the story of the communities, those who collectively cannot speak. And, um, and for me as an Afghan myself, I felt like I lost country, my country two times. I experienced the war two times. The first time the Taliban ruled and the second time, it just feels like the history repeating itself and I'm in the midst of it. And for me, the only thing that can make me be part of that community and for me that epiphany works as waking up and knowing that my voice and the stories that I'm gonna tell it's going to make things happen. It's going to make audience like yourself aware of the situation that, um, that despite what's happening, despite how the war is affecting every individual, the story goes on and people are going to come out of that horrible time. They're going to remember it. And it's, as we were talking, there is no anger. There's not going to be reactions to that extreme. There's going to be a moment that they have processed everything and they come to talk collectively, and that's where the power of the stories, the story of the power of epiphany really uh, comes through. Um, so that's how I see it, really. And so what do you think? Sarah? Thank you, um, Pavana. Yes, um, I think the, um, as he was saying, the, the epiphany is a very interesting way of looking at it. And he was talking about communities coming together to help each other. Um, in Sarajevo, this was, it was 30 years ago, uh, this year that the, the siege started, uh, went on for four years. Um, and many of my, uh, mother's relatives were trapped inside the city. And what happened was, uh, a coming together of community and of people helping each other in many ways and in black butterflies. You can really see that uh, the protagonist of it is an artist um, and she's stranded in Sarajevo without her husband who has just gone to England 
and her neighbours and her all come together and start helping each other in a way that was very interesting. He was saying, you might not know these people, but you start trusting them and everyone is helping. And this sort of this narrative of resistance starts building up and um, that's kind of one of, it helps fight the sort of dehumanization of war and it can be quite uh, something quite beautiful amongst all the devastation of war. And it's also, just to add on that, it's also that, you know, the, the, the effect of displacement, right? Once mm. they leave the war country and they, they're in a different space, you know, I'm talking about the experience of Afghans who, are, who had to leave the country last August, and they find themselves all of a sudden in this strange place, in a different culture, and... Um, and, and, and they try to avoid each other. They try because they, they, they have experienced very similar things and they think they're going to be very vulnerable next to each other. But as time passes, right, they, they come to understand that, no, they, they have nothing to hide. You know? and, and I don't know what it is. It's the, the, that compassion, that kindness that brings them together. And, and I got to see that um, when I was visiting my family who were evacuated and they went to Albania. And this group of Afghans, about like 600 people, all of a sudden finding themselves in Albania, in the midst of East and West, right? It's a very interesting place. And, and, and first time when I visited, a month after they moved there in October, last October, there was this sense of isolating. And then the second time I visited them in January, they were coming together. And interestingly, and there were enemies in the midst that they were aware of each other's existence. The second meeting, they come together and they're celebrating Eid and they're trying to feed each other. And that, that sense of connection, a new connection that's born, that's epiphany for me. That's the power of the, 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 you know, the communities coming together to help each other, regardless of the differences they have hold. You know, it's, it's, I don't know what it is, but it's, I think it's just the experience of the war. It's just like we have seen the wars. And we can make magic happen through kindness and compassion. And that's where stories happen. That's where I think our role becomes very significant. That is where stories happen, actually. And I think that's an excellent way of segueing maybe into offering you both the opportunity to read a little bit from your text. Um, I don't know who, which, who would like to go first. <laughs> Ronnie, would you like to keep going? Um, so just to give you an, uh, a little bit of an introduction about the book. The book came out last July 2021, at the end of in, in 21st of July, right before Kabul fell, a month after that, obviously. So this book was really a celebration of this momentary triumph, that sense of epiphany that I had felt personally. And all of a sudden, a month after that Kabul fell, the country went into war, the same history repeated itself. That Everything in this book feels nostalgic already for me. So um, uh, I, I became reconnected to the stories. Everything is very fresh. If I get emotional, it's because I'm still wounded, really. <clears throat> Sewing needles. When the war started, my father took my mother on a journey, a journey unwanted by either of them away from home and far from their city. Into exile, next to our little feet and hands, my mother carried her box of sewing needles and her butterfly sewing machine made in the USSR. Moving between rented rooms, fabric became a land familiar to her. Opening her box and resting her sewing machine on the floor, she made dresses of different colors and textures. Kabul gave her velvet in all colors. She chose, some, she chose the colors of liver and ocean, burgundy and royal blue. Pakistan gave her satin and yellow and orange. She preferred something onion colored. India gave her cotton and thick and thin. She selected something in between. One year, she learned to spin coarse wool and with the money she earned, she bought silk. She waited, I waited, until the hard skin on the tips of her fingers softened before she touched the silk. She then made dresses for her three daughters, 
Parwana, Shabnam, and Gauhar, and colors pistachio, red rose, and sea green. Every stitch of her needle gave life to elegant styles of youth and an Afghan mother's pride, even in exile. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Um, so I think I'll just read the opening pages of my novel. Um, so it doesn't really need too much introduction. Just to say this is 1992 in Sarajevo in Bosnia in the former Yugoslavia. Um, and it's just before the war starts. So we're, um, it's kind of the first signs of war for Zora, who is the protagonist. She's an artist. <coughs> It sometimes seems to Zora that with all the teaching and curating and meetings and paperwork and caring and cooking and cleaning and errands, she is floundering at the midpoint of her life. There's no time left over for the core of her. Perhaps at 55, she's beyond the midpoint now, but she'd always imagined that these years, her child grown and gone, herself not yet old, would be her most spacious and productive. She'd pictured herself spending long, blissful days in her studio, but instead, everything else always encroaches. There's the forward rhythm of the tram and the rattle of the dusty window panes, the worry. She presses her forehead to the glass, drinking in her city at this strange hour. The wind carries twisting flyers down the street and the mountains waver in the pre-dawn light. The outlines of things, Buildings, frozen cars, a sleeping drunk are porous. The threshold between night and day feels uncertain, as if she could just as easily slip back into the night as go forwards into the day. Her husband, the sole other passenger, keeps his eyes closed and grips the handrail. His head droops, long spine curving. She could hardly stir, stir him from bed. It's the weekend, and she'd hoped to spend her day in the studio, but the terse 5 a.m. phone call put a stop to that. There's been a break-in, her mother's neighbour informed her. Criminals, hooligans, God knows what. Dancing and drinking all night, whooping and shouting. The police don't want to know. A cool needle of alarm slid into Zora's belly. But, she reminded herself, her mother's neighbour had always overreacted and thought the worst of everyone. The criminals were probably no more than a couple of stone teenagers having fun in an empty flat. Still, she and Franio moved quickly, groping for clothes, fingers fumbling with buttons. Through the tram windows, Zora sees that old sofas bristling with barbed wire have been dragged out to split certain streets in two. She feels a pulse of shock. She's read about this, but has never been up early enough to see it before. She knows, because everyone does, that men with black stockings pulled low over their heads do this every night to carve up the city into enclaves. These furtive nationalists could be anyone, a neighbor, a lover, a friend. It's futile in any case. Every morning, the bemused inhabitants of the street, whether Muslim, Croat or Serb, simply push the barriers aside and get on with their days. Now, I know when we were, we were just discussing this, what should we read and how do we bring the stories to life? And I've just had an idea, so I'm going to feel free to say no if you'd like, but hopefully you <laughs> say yes. Um, because, um, Parwana, you, you made the point, life goes on um, as these conflicts unfold or unfolded. And that also came through in the interview that we were conducting. And every day happens and you have these relationships but also how you maintain that normal changes. And I know this comes through in your poem on when your mother made the dolls. Mm -hmm. And it's also, in, so there's caring relationships mm -hmm. there as well. But then there's also caring relationships and duties of care towards those we don't know. And I know this has come through in the conversation that we've had about another passage in your book. Mm -hmm. And so I thought maybe the way to bring that in comment on how the story explains how the everyday continues to unfold and then maybe return to the work that you've produced for us today. Would that be, would you be happy to do that? Yeah, sure. Brilliant. Thank you. Parwana, would you like to go first? Yes. Um, well, interestingly, it's, um, you know, during the war, I think 
the most creative uh, person in the family could the mother figure or the women in the family because she is basically in the private spaces where kids are growing up, mm-hmm. where food is being prepared. It's quite an interesting juxtaposition, but I've observed in so many different cultures, different periods, different countries going to war. The stories are carried within the households are always women who have taken charge of the, the you know, bringing the culture back. And for me, my mother had been a very big influence on the way I think of myself and connection to the country, the stories, and how life should go as smoothly as it could. And she was also this force of life where nothing becomes something. A piece of fabric becomes a dress. Um, forgotten yarns around becomes a beautiful bag. And, and this, this was my mother's role, you know, outside the four walls of the room, war was happening, shooting, you could hear them, but my mother would be sitting there, she would be saying, how about I make your dress? This is what we're gonna do, you're gonna help me. And my, while my father is in the background, he is always outside, he, he's so aware of the situation. And for me, I, obviously my dad would come back and he would teach me in the evenings, right? But my mother, she was the, the stage where performance, where life happened. And for me, it's just that the way they believe that you should keep doing things in order to not only help yourself, but those around you. And, um, and in order for, for them to distract us, obviously, part of our culture is more or less, you know, a lot of literature, reading and recitation. And she would, my mother has never been educated. She, is, she, she remained illiterate. And um, she would uh, tell us stories, stories about an aunt that we never got to learn about her or my grandparents. And, uh, and that became part of normal life. This is how I grew up, right? I always get this um, juxtaposition. Like some of the stories here can be a little too heartbreaking for a little kid. Like when I was growing up, all the stories were repeated. Right? Someone told me, like, um, we grew up with the story of Cinderella perfect story but you grew up with this story how do you reconcile and I'm like I learned about Cinderella when I was in in university I loved it as much as any story that I grew up learning about because when your mother says it it's in the most you know it's a safe place you know she's telling you because she knows how to make you aware of it so I think for me that was her her art the physical art that she made but also the stories she told me that in order to keep us, you know, safe and away from the danger that was outside. And, um, and it's interesting, I was just talking with the uh, Priscilla about how uh, my mother picked up on sewing and making dresses when we went to Pakistan as refugees. And when we returned to Afghanistan in 2005, she stopped and because life was very busy meeting her cousins, uncles and hosting them. And then last October when she left the country, um, she's picked up again and she's making dresses again. She's sewing and it's coming back to her and it's just this connection again. And her art is more powerful now, obviously, because she knows what she wants to sew. She knows what colors she wants to use. And that's just... Um, for me to see it, you know, as a kid and now as an adult, it's um, it's more powerful that way. But also emotionally, it's just I don't know, exhausting. But at the same time, I know that that's for her. That's a normal way of living now. So, yeah, that's how I see it. Thank it's you. So fascinating, and it's really interesting to hear you talking about uh, the importance of art, both storytelling and sewing, mm. and because it's something that really resonates with me and my own family's experience and also with very much the themes of black butterflies. Um, the Zora's neighbour is Mirsad, who is a Muslim who has a bookstore and he writes stories. And one of the stories is um, sort of narrated towards the end of Black Butterflies in a very sort of key moment mm-hmm. of war. The, all the neighbours are gathered around. It's minus 20. They don't have any heating. There's no electricity, very little food. And yet he tells the story and they're all listening by candlelight. And it is this form of resistance and getting through mm. the war. Mm. Um, 
interesting, my, my grandmother, who my father rescued from the siege uh, a year in, she, her, my grandparents lived through a year of the siege, and then my father went out to rescue them. When she got to England, um, you know, you can imagine complete, obviously, your family as well, being displaced and never being able to go back to your country. Mm-hmm. But for them, at a very old age, she turned to embroidery and to making and jigsaws the whole flat was covered in jigsaws and I think it's this sort of process of it's a way a creative response to war to the pain and confusion and complete turning around of your world mm-hmm. can be through create creativity and very often um, an academic understanding is not going to do it and so I think Zora in this in my book that's how she processes the war she makes art out of the um, debris of war. So she, you know, uh, the shrapnel that she finds on the ground and feathers from pigeons and stuff, it all goes into the artworks that she makes. Mm-hmm. And it, it, is, it is surprising the amount of creativity that can flourish in wartime conditions. Yeah, almost not even as a coping mechanism, but as a refuge mm-hmm. to keep that normalcy and to move forward because every day is still happening. I mean, that does come up. I was struck reading both of your works that we have this link between the two of art and create what we now, I guess, call creative industries, but really it's creativity as a mode of expression. And I know you said your mother was illiterate, but she had this beautiful different way of telling mm-hmm. a story mm-hmm. that defied you know, pen and paper and what we've come to expect. I'm mindful we all have done, you know, we're all coming from an academic environment and now we're talking in non-academic ways, but these seem to be very important. And, and the fact that both of the characters in both in your novel and your poetry were women and artists. And how important do you think that was in the telling of your stories? Um, I, I, I think that, you know, um, the same way that Zora becomes an artist by putting these pieces together, I think as a writer, I see myself making sense of fragments. Everything, you know, everything that's, you know, kind of clustered around, I'm the one who can give it a shape, right? As a, as a poet, I, I, I was just thinking, I mean, you're talking, I wrote the title of this one poem that I'm going to write because... Um, because that could only make sense because we have been talking about this little things around and, and an artist is able to see the bigger vision and put them together to make give them a frame, right? It's, it's about that. Um, I don't know, for me, that's a moment of reconciliation within myself. A poem ends and I'm like, okay, mm. I can now breathe. I, can, I, I made sense of it. And uh, it's... Um, it's something that you know comes to you, and you you're struggling to understand. You you you're restless, and that's that's when, for me at least, story has to make sense only by writing it. Absolutely. And and, and that's that's a sense of it, it almost feels a sense of obligation, right? Yes. You've been in yeah. the midst of it. You know. You've seen. <laughs> you've witnessed it. Now, can you make sense of it? Can you convey it? And uh, I mean. That's how a book comes into an existence. And um, yeah, that's yeah. how I see it. Absolutely. Just, just to respond to that, because I think I, um, it's interesting because the overall theme today is about creative responses to war. And I think creativity very much, uh, it can come from many places, but it can be a response to, to pain and confusion. And for me, when I was 19, the war started and I just didn't understand, just like we're watching <clears throat> on TV at the moment, all the horrific scenes unfolding in Ukraine, that was happening with Sarajevo, talking mm. about history repeating mm. itself, um, 30 years ago. And I could not understand that. And this, for me, has been my artistic mm. response to it. So it's taken quite a long time to process and come out. But in response to your question about the, the female protagonist, um, so this is inspired by family history. And actually, it's quite interesting because it was my great uncle who was an artist who um, lived through many of the events that Zora lives through here. And his studio was shelled and he lost his life's work. And he eventually escaped Sarajevo and came to England. 
where after a period of not painting at all and being in complete, complete shock, as he would be, mm-hmm. he then started painting again. And he painted for another 20 years. He lived in Bristol um, till his death when he was 95 a few years ago. And for me, he was a very inspirational figure. So that's what inspired mm. the writing of Black Butterflies. But I made him into a woman. <laughs> Why? Because when I interviewed, I, I spent quite a lot of time in Sarajevo interviewing people about their experience of the siege. And for whatever reason, it was women's tales that came alive for me and mm. interested me. Maybe, I, I don't know why, maybe a woman speaking to a woman, but I was seeing the war through mm. a woman's eyes. Mm. And so that was where my interest lied. And so Zora, mm. inspired by my great uncle, has, um, it's very important to me that she is a woman and that this is, I think it's also interesting Quite often in literature, we see war through a man's eyes. So it's quite interesting to see it through a woman's eyes as well. That almost takes us full circle to the point that you made as we opened the yeah. panel um, about being in the home and the telling of the stories and, and, and those types of things as well. We've actually, we're just going through time so quickly now, and I do have to offer some opportunities to the audience to ask some questions, but I thought maybe as a way of tying this section to a close, I'd offer you the opportunity, uh, Parwana, to read another poem. And Priscilla, if you want to finish off with another reading, and then we will obviously take some questions. Great. Um, I'm going to read a poem called um, Her Name is Flower Sap, which is uh, the story of um, the young Afghan woman that appeared on the National Geographic Channel with the beautiful green eyes. And um, uh, she... Um, she inspired this poem, obviously, but also um, we were refugees in Pakistan when the, the, the image became very popular. And we were, as, an, as Afghans ourselves, we were equally intrigued by the story and by the image. And obviously, as kids, we started making stories up. And I tried to capture it in this um, poem and obviously give her the name instead of calling her an Afghan woman because... Really, the book is about naming the unnamed, naming the unknowns. Her name is Flower Sap. Somewhere in the no man's land, there are high mountains and there is a woman. The mountains are seemingly unreachable. The woman in her anonymity is untraceable. The mountains are called Tora Bora. The woman is known as Sherbat Gula. Flower sap. In her faded ruby red chador, she appeared, a young girl with a frown, with her green eyes, not knowing where to look when the world looked back at her. As young kids, refugees of wartime in Pakistan, we were equally intrigued with her photograph. Her eyes have the magic of good and bad. The light of her eyes can destroy fighter jets. So went Afghan children's conversation in the aftermath of 9-11. But could she take down the Taliban jets, we wondered, as the jets crossed the skies in one song. But Flowersap could never answer us, for she had disappeared like our childhood. As the borders became damper lands, Afghans like softworms crawled toward their homeland. In the in-between mountains, Flower sap reappeared without any answers. Now she was a grown-up woman, a mother of four girls, a widow. There were some questions in her eyes, the one I had seen in my parents' eyes. Where do we go next, now that the country is free? She still did not have the answers. And where was the power of her eyes? I then saw her smiling as an immigrant I smile too, for her name saved the day. She was taken to a hospital for her eyes. The president of the country met her and sent her on a pilgrimage. Her name educated her daughters. It gave her a house and a reason to return to her homeland. What else is there in the names and naming, if not for reparation?
Um, I will. My flight butterflies is divided into uh, five sections, and the first four are following the seasons. So before I read to you from the beginning of spring, I'll now jump forward to the beginning of summer where war has fully started. Um, and this is a, a scene where Zora really confronts this. <laughs> when she first sees it, she thinks it's a pile of old rags, a heap of clothes in the middle of the road. Dust and smoke from the explosion still thick in the air and broken glass crackles underfoot. She looks up again as she gets closer, a dead dog, its fur splattered with dirt by passing vehicles. The air thins and grows cloudy again. It isn't until she's on the curb, about to cross, that she sees that it isn't a dog at all, but a woman in a filthy white coat. Zora's hand flies to her mouth and her temples pound. The woman lies lifeless on the tarmac, her back curved as if protectively around a pool of dark blood. A sickening scent comes off her. Zora wonders how long she's been lying there and why no one has carried her away. Black hair falls over her face, and it's impossible to tell if she's Dubravka's age or her own. Zora looks around for help, but the few people that there are on the street don't seem to notice. They pass by grey figures with hunched shoulders and bent heads. On the point of moving forward to pull the body to the pavement, she checks herself and remains paralysed on the curb. She could be hit by the same sniper. This might be some sort of trap. Heart beating fast, Zora turns away. Pressing herself close to the shop fronts, she crosses the road further down, away from the exposed junction, waves of shock breaking inside her. There's been a, there's a, she attempts to tell the people she passes. Perhaps they'll know what to do, how to set things in motion to contact the woman's relatives. But everyone walks with their eyes down. Teaching a near-empty class that day, the image of the woman in the white coat, body bent into a C-shape, assaults her again and again. The more she tries not to think about her, the more she's there, bending down to get jars out of the cupboard or reaching for a book on the shelf. Zora sees her and gasps as if she's been punched. Both of you, that was just amazing. Um, I believe we have somebody roaming with a microphone. If you would like to ask your question, please just raise your hand um, and perhaps even introduce yourself because you now know us, so it might be nice to have a name to respond to. Hi, thank you very much indeed. That was a fantastic discussion. Uh, can't thank you enough. Just two brief questions, right? Um, did uh, you both... Um, uh, ever find or encounter people who absolutely did not want to remember what they had experienced or talk about what they had experienced. And the second question is, did you ever observe, come into contact with, and learn anything from very young children who had experienced war and trauma? Can I? Yes, thank you. That's a great question. Thank you. Um, yes, absolutely. To both of those. Um, my great uncle, who is the artist that inspired this book, and his wife, I talked to them at length uh, on several occasions about their experiences of the war, but they found it actually very difficult to talk about the actual siege itself. So they could talk quite clearly about the events leading up to it, so, um, for example, the story that I'm, uh, I start off the, the novel with about these intruders that break into the flat, a lot of detail there. And then about their coming to England, that they did find it very hard to actually talk about the war. And they were, they were interviewed a few times because, as I said, he became this, uh, you know, he became part of an, an artist club in Bristol and, you know, it was quite an amazing story. And over the years, they just clammed up more and more. They found it really hard to talk about it. Um, and in answer to the second, yes, there was um, uh, uh, there's a girl called Anna uh, who was eight when the war started, who lived beneath my grandparents. Who uh, So when I went to Sarajevo to 
do research and talk to people. She was then 26, and she actually uh, talked to me a lot about her experience of being an eight-year-old girl during the four years of the siege. And there is a, a figure in this book, a character called Una, who very closely uh, takes a lot of her stories, and it was very interesting hearing that experience. She's read the book. She now lives in Germany, and it's you know she, it's quite interesting hearing her reaction to it because for her that was normality. Of course, these were her formative years, and to grow up during that time, and yeah, she really appreciated reading it being made into into fiction. And I think I'll I'll just pick on that same sort of a, a you know conversation about war. More than anything, I think um, it's trauma that the trauma of war or the anything in between really that that I, I just observe that kids remember it vividly than the you know oldest older members, especially in the case of Afghanistan. Obviously, my parents have seen so many different aspects of war, the Soviet invasion, the civil war, the Taliban regime, and in between the Taliban regime and the first one and the second one, everyone went through trauma. Kabul was always um, the platform of explosions and suicide. People got injured. I nearly lost my youngest brother in, in a suicide. He was in bed for six months. And that trauma, my youngest siblings remember it vividly than my parents who are avoiding to talk about it still. And that happened last um, about um, a year and a half. And my parents avoid to talk about it because the memory is still very fresh. But my youngest siblings, I learned a lot of things by them talking. And they, they remember it in a way that it's, they can express it so strongly. Like my, my, my youngest sister is 11, and at that time she was you know, nine and nine and a half or so. And she, she would just cry her eyes out. And I could remember that she was remembered every detail that my parents, either they don't want to talk about it or they don't remember it or something is happening there, right? But I don't, I don't understand. It's, 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 um, and obviously the, the, you know, the taking over of Kabul itself has impacted children more than adults because children born after 9-11, they, they associate their existence in juxtaposition to some sort of freedom that the parents were openly sharing with them, right? You can go to schools, nothing is going to happen. The country was going somewhere. And all of a sudden, that, that just stops. And all of a sudden, the city has fallen to the Taliban again. They're everywhere. And they're scary. They're, they just, you know, they just don't look like any other human with long beards and clenching coats on their shoulder and they're walking around. And the kids are, because they're such, they're just memory machine, they remember everything. And my siblings who are the youngest siblings who stayed in Kabul for two months, they remember every single thing. And they're, um, they're just ready to talk about it. And uh, while my parents, I still can't get them to talk how they felt. And you know, it's just, mm. I just have to wait for that art to appear. Is it just like my mother? I don't, I don't think she has, she has a process it yet, mm. but her way of, you know, creating something is going to teach me something. So I'm trying to be kind toward how, you know, older members in the family who have gone through trauma are going to express it. While for kids, it's so important for them to express. And uh, I'm, I'm going to do a lot more research on the Afghan communities who left uh, after, after uh, last um, August were settled in Sacramento, California, where majority of Afghans ended up going. And uh, that will be a very interesting study. And that's going to be my second book of poetry that I'm trying to capture that, that, that trauma of that. I don't know even how to call it. I'm still trying to make sense of that myself. But it's, it's quite a, it's, it's tough. It's the most difficult thing, I think, for anyone. We have a question right here. Hi, uh, my name is Maria, and I've actually just visited Sarajevo after Easter. Um, and coming from Poland, it made me really reflect on how the societies and nations, as time pass, deal with the traumatic experience of you know occupation and and being in a war zone, um, and whether it made me think whether 
you know, it's a linear process um, of how you heal or how you deal with what happened. Um, and what you've talked a lot about is the similarities and the common experience of humans in war zone and humans in exile. My question is more about what makes your work speci like specific to the ex experience of locality. Um, so what makes it more about the Bosnian mm. siege or yes. the Afghani experience rather than just a book about war? Yeah. Thank you. Uh, that's that's a, a great question. Um, and I hope you enjoyed Sarajevo. It's a beautiful city. And part of the reason I... Uh, yes. I mean, I, I really love Sarajevo and I think the love the city comes through here um, and it, part of it, me writing this was hoping to correct some of the image of it just being constantly war-torn and stuff. Um, what makes it specific, I would say, is, is, is two things. One is that there's a real focus on place in this mm -hmm. novel. So you, Zora is a landscape painter. She loves the, the mountains that surround Sarajevo. She loves the very particular geography of Sarajevo, which it's very unique, really, in the way it's a sort of east meets west. You've got lots of mosques, you've got cathedrals, you've got churches. Um, it's before the war, Bosnia was renowned for being this um, very multicultural, uh, secular place where people got on. And one in three marriages in Sarajevo before the war were mixed between mixed nationalities I think that's probably entirely changed now because it's a very different city, um, unfortunately. And so I do address also the, the question of nationality in this. So Zora is a Bosnian Serb, which is a little bit unusual and maybe confusing because it's the Bosnian Serb nationalists who are shelling the city, but she's anti-nationalist. And there were a sizable number of Bosnian Serbs who were trapped in the city who were anti-nationalist and who were also suffering through the siege. Um, and so I very much want... There, there, there are quite a few books on Sarajevo, novels on Sarajevo, which don't name the nationalities, mm. the, the cellist of Sarajevo, for example, and other ones, which and I completely understand why, partly because they're going for the universal experience and not wanting to confuse this very confusing situation politically. But I didn't want to do that, and I wanted to call a Serb a Serb and a Muslim a Muslim and I, because that's what I was interested in in the specificity of it as well um, but it's not primarily a political novel at all it's but I do go into that I do go into the peace marches that happened just before the siege started the anti-nationalist voice that was kind of completely quashed and so there is plenty of specificity in there and also, most importantly, that that sensibility that you have toward the thing, right? That's the creation of everything. That place is very specific, very local, but you can feel it so well that you connect it to the yes. universal sense. So you bring the story to the audience that anyone can relate. War is war, but if it's a story written about Bosnia or Afghanistan or Ukraine, that story pulls attention to the much, you know, the, to the source of you know, what's something that's more connected, that source of your creation, really, and that understanding. So that kindness, that compassion, that emotion that's just contained in one place, it can give that universality. And that's where I think stories make sense, mm -hmm. because, you know, that, that emotion that surrounds it, that's just so pure, that's the, that's what I think of it, right? I mean, it's, um, you know, we were talking about this uh, fiction, the, the, my pain is the pink of a bird yesterday, and that, that, that was a question of, you know, how do you find um, yourself as an Afghan living in a city like that, but also, you know, belonging to this, you know, global world, because I've studied in America and, and now in the UK, and how do you feel this connection? And I'm like, every time I pick those stories, there are little objects in those stories that I feel connected to. And I can, you know, by being the translator, translating those stories, I make that accessible to, to the, the, the readers of the world. And, and that's how 
as writers, I think, function yes. to connect that particularity to the universality. That's where the power comes from, really. Thank you. Yes. Thanks. Are there any more questions? Um, yeah, uh, fourth brother. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for your stories. My question is two-pronged. Throughout the 90s, Yugoslavia was in the news every day. Now it's never in the news. Have all the ethnic tensions resolved, or is there some kind of uneasy peace? Afghanistan has suffered the tragedy of 40 years of involvement from the imperialist powers, Russia and America, and the constant turmoil of the Taliban, and then retreat and then regathering. Do you worry that Afghanistan will fall out of the national headlines now, and uh, it will fall off the back pages, and uh, they'll be left their own uh, devices and to suffer in silence without the world taking much notice? I, I just know that um, as a citizen of the world, I'm aware of what the world, the power of the world can do collectively. Afghanistan is a country with very rich history and, and very complicated history, to be honest. People of different colors and different religious backgrounds, they live in that little space. And I don't think we have cracked it yet. We don't, I don't think anyone understood. Whoever came and controlled the place and tried to rule, then got no idea what were they dealing with. And even the Taliban, who thinks that they control the country, they have no idea what they're doing. Because it's a country that changes within. And uh, it's really hard for me to have any answer to that. But I just, um, I just know that it's a country with complexity, and it can only become a place where, you know, there can be a little hope by the country building on its own, by understanding that it's diverse. But then we we have the internal conflict for a longer time, and um, and that's why things are happening. What's happening really? I don't know. I still don't know. I'm just very sad because. People are amazing. The, the stories are great. The history, the literature, and the whole landscape. It's the most magical place I've ever been. You know, Kabul city in the middle of the night. If, you, if you're walking in the, in the yard, you look up, the stars are brighter than any stars I've seen, to be honest. You know, it's, I did astrology in my, during my undergrad, so I know why stars are brighter in the land, because it's a country that was never, it's, it's the mountains are high, it's, um, I don't know, it's a country that we, you know, Afghanistan itself means the land of roars, and the ones who roars and screams, which is so, you know, for us that's something very aggressive. But in, back in history, that meant something, you know, a country of where there are you know, fighters, but also those who defend, you know, kind of um, defend themselves. But um, I can't make sense of Afghanistan, and I don't know anything what's going to happen, how things are. Yes. Mm, yeah, and, and, and that can only happen because, you know, within a country you, you get controlled, you've been monitored. But the Afghans abroad, now that we know there is a lot of Afghans living abroad and they become, and they live in exile, that's when we're going to see Afghanistan outside Afghanistan. And that's what matters in the longer term. Um, because I don't think we ever had that history of Afghans migrating big groups in the West. We had people going to Iran, Afghanistan, uh, Pakistan and other neighboring countries, but they never got the chance to travel globally. And um, the resistance, the culture can be born outside Afghanistan. And I can't wait to see that happening because it's going to happen no matter what. Thank you very much. I can't believe I have to say this, but we are running out of time. Would you like to come in with any last words in the interest of balance? Mm. Can, can I just say that quick? A really quick response to your question about Bosnia is that it's a very uneasy piece uh, at the moment and the tensions are all still there. It's been partitioned down the middle, uh, the Dayton Agreement. You've got the Serb Republic and the Federation and, you know, I'm constantly reading in the media that there's rumours another war may start up. So I, I don't think it's, it's still simmering away. Unfortunately, I don't think anything's really been resolved. It's just like a lid has been put on all the tensions. So. It was a, it's a great question and conversation, I think, to draw to a close because I think it just shows how important events like these are. 
as a way of challenging um, the narrative that we get in the media, but also creating avenues for alternative conversations and for telling stories that might not otherwise be told. And so going back to the interview that we had with Yuvko and hearing the stories that you've had and the impetus on people to read and to learn and to listen to what other people are saying, I think is really important. So I guess I'll close by way of thank you for this event, for the opportunity to be here chatting and for coming today on a Sunday afternoon. Thank you so much, everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Birmingham Lit Fest Presents podcast. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at BHamLitFest. All information about the festival and upcoming events can be found on our website www.birminghamliteraturefestival.org. The Birmingham Lit Fest Presents podcast is produced by 11C and Birmingham Podcast Studios for Writing West Midlands. 